You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. And today we are in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm Andrew Kingsley and with me is Drew Kaiser. And last week we talked about, we really introduced the book of 1 Timothy. We mentioned that Paul is writing this letter to a young Timothy who's a minister at the church in Ephesus. And he's really giving Timothy some advice, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit here, but he's giving Timothy some advice for how to handle some of the issues that have come up in Ephesus. The first of those issues you see uh, as soon as he opens up the letter, he gives the uh, introduction in verses 1 and 2 that's common in every letter, and then right in verse 3 he gets into the meat of what he's trying to say. Um, He talks about all these myths and endless genealogies. He's talking about people that are teaching false things. And so he gets right into it, mentioning to Timothy, hey, watch out for these kinds of people. And then he closes the chapter uh, by even mentioning two guys by name who have been involved in some of this kind of false teaching, uh, these sorts of things. And so when we wind up in chapter two, he's going to continue on really with his, uh, I guess his um, refutations of what, if that's even a word, He's oh, yeah. refuting. That's a, is, that's a real word. It's a word now. He's refuting yeah. what these teachers are trying to tell everybody. As you can picture a young man, Timothy, at a congregation with a, a group of the Lord's people, trying to teach them, trying to lead them. Uh, there's no Bible at this time, so keep that in mind. They're not sitting around and reading their New Testaments on a Tuesday night or on a Wednesday well, night. Well, they may be reading the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, yeah they might be reading comes the Old Testament. Uh, in the second letter to Timothy a couple times. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, if if chapter 1 is the negative, chapter 2 is the positive. Because mm-hmm. in chapter, chapter 1, we noticed last week that uh, there was a lack of focus in the church at Ephesus. There was a lot of drifting away, swerving away. Um, he uses all kinds of uh, uh, language, and especially the metaphor of, of, of ships and and sailing, uh, they'd made a shipwreck of their faith. And so um, he's trying to get them back to order, which mm-hmm. is the key word of the, of the, of the chapter. In fact, uh, we're calling this episode order, kind of like uh, a judge in a, in a courtroom, mm-hmm. order in the court. And uh, that's all based on this, this key word in the Greek. It's cosmos. There's a popular mm-hmm. television show right now about astrophysics called cosmos. And uh, a lot of people are familiar with that word as it pertains to the world, to the universe. And it is a word that the Greeks used to refer to the world or to the universe. And uh, But its basic fundamental meaning is arrangement or order. And uh, they looked at the universe as being very orderly. And mm-hmm. so that's an oversimplification, but that's how cosmos came to signify the universe, mm-hmm. but it's used with regard to a lady's dress uh, in First Timothy chapter two, which is very interesting. And we'll say more about that in a moment. But the whole chapter really is about order. So you have the disorder of chapter one juxtaposed mm-hmm. with the order of chapter two, and there are four basic um, points that he makes on order throughout this chapter. And we'll just dive right into them if you're ready to go, Andrew. I'm ready. Okay. So for the reading, we're going to look at these four points. And the first one is orderly prayer. 
Uh, verse 1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, that's the first thing that he says about prayer. And you'll notice, and we'll talk more about this in the practical section, but in verse 1, he gives four classifications of prayer. Uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Those terms may or may not be distinguished from one another. Uh, there's slight differences that you know we'll, we'll get into later on. I think that might be pretty interesting and instructive for us. But he wants the prayer to be said for all people, and then he kind of gives an example there with the kings and those in positions of authority. And, uh, you know, it tells us that we ought to pray for uh, the leaders of our country, the leaders of other countries, those who are in positions of authority, you know, maybe in the workplace and especially in the government, uh, in the church, of course. And so he says a lot about prayer right there. And you can see him asking for structure you know, it reminds me, and I meant to say this in the introduction, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 that uh, God is a God of order. And uh, he tells us he's not a God of confusion, but of peace. And uh, the chapter ends with him saying all things should be done decently and in order. And uh, we use that a lot of times just as a little proof text against anything mm -hmm. we wanted to go against you know, that we mm -hmm. think is disorderly. But there is a lot of meaning packed in that about the nature of God, about what He likes, and about why church life is organized the way that it's organized. Yeah. And so when it comes to prayer, already we see some things. Now, there's a basis for the prayer. I mean, why is it that we can even pray to God? I mean, you think about how far He is from us. Isaiah says that His thoughts are are higher than our thoughts, and His ways are higher than our ways. Why? How in the world are we able to access heaven and make petitions to God? Well, that's answered in verses 5 through 7. There's one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So in those three verses, you have the gospel, basically. He calls it a testimony here. Uh, well, actually calls it the testimony mm -hmm. uh, given at the proper time. But uh, the world was ripe for the gospel, and here it is. The gospel is that there is a mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. We'll have fun talking about that in the next segment. Okay. And uh, the gospel is that he gave his, his life as a ransom, and and that's uh, what Paul had been appointed to. We talked about the stewardship of Paul last week. He's talking about it again here in verse 7. Um, so, you know, if you want a good synopsis of the gospel that's something a little different than John 3, 16, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. If you want something to dwell on during the Lord's Supper, a little mm -hmm. different from reading Matthew 26, you know, or um, one of the accounts of the crucifixion, turn over to 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I think this is a, a really interesting thing, kind of on the line, on the level of what Paul does in Philippians 2, uh, where he gives that beautiful 
summary of of what Jesus did for us. Mm-hmm. Now, in verse 8, he says something else about prayer. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, it's interesting that he switches words for men in verse 8. And I guess from a Greek perspective, he hasn't switched anything. He's just talking about two different concepts. But if we're reading in our English translations, it's important to point out that the word for men that is used in some translations of verse 1, um, that's used of Jesus in verse 5, uh, is not the same word used of men praying in verse 8. In verses uh, 1 and 5, it's the word anthropos, which you may you know, recognize from our term anthropology, the study of human beings. Um, it's a word that can mean men and women, both sexes. It has to do with, you know, human beings. It's probably the best translation of it the way that we use the language today. The word, of course, in verse 8 has to do with males, aner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's uh, specific to men. And so he's talking here about order in worship, the who should lead prayer in worship, something that he's going to get into even more in a few more verses. So you see a lot of instructions there with regard to prayer, and I'm, I'm saving some of this, of course, for our discussion later on. Mm-hmm. Just trying to set it all up in our reading. Uh, ready to go to point two? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll also mention that that word there for man is all, a lot of times is translated as husband. So we're definitely talking about specifically, I mean, we can get more into that in the second section. But yeah, that's true, though. I'm just glad you brought up the big distinction because uh, that other word you mentioned, anthropos, is kind of like a general mankind kind of word. Right. So it yeah. is interesting to note that distinction here. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have had to make it, you know, to readers who knew Greek. Because yeah. they, you know, it's two different words. But mm-hmm. in English, we don't really distinguish that. And um, I know it's surprising for you here, but... Um, Today, people have um, problems understanding gender issues. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this. <laughs> what but, now? Yeah. I haven't seen anything about Get it Get a newspaper, TV. Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second point, uh, orderly life. Orderly life. That takes us back up to verse 2. I know we've already read it, but I'm, I'm wanting to set something up here. He mentions that the aim of prayer ought to be, you know, in praying for these kings and people in positions of authority, the hope is, or the answered prayer would result in a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This has to do with, you know, um, you know, a good life, a stable life, somewhat prosperous. And the point of that life is not for us to be comfortable or for us to, you know, enjoy it, although that may be a a great byproduct, but we must remember we're here to glorify God. The whole point of it is so we could do something that is very pleasing to God, and that is preach the gospel. A a stable life, stable governments result in better evangelism. You know, in our country, we have the freedom of speech. We We can go without harassment into places and and preach the gospel. You can't do that all over the world. But here in America, at least for now, and I know that there are a lot of things in the news as we are recording this podcast that challenge this idea, but for the most part in most places in America, 
it is peaceful and it is quiet. And so churches can get established, they can build buildings, they can hold meetings, they can do mm-hmm. campaigns, they can knock on doors, they can send out literature, they can have radio broadcasts and podcasts and television shows and do all kinds of things to try to get the word out. And so that is why Paul says what he says in verses 3 and 4. After saying, you know, pray so that you can have a peaceful and quiet life, he says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's great desire is for all people to be saved, but in order to be saved, they must come to a knowledge of the truth. But in order to have the truth, someone must be preaching, but for somebody to be preaching, there needs to be you know, a, a structure where they can mm-hmm. do that, order, some kind of order in life, not chaos. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gets us to that main theme of order again. So even in those verses... It's all about an orderly life. Ready for point three? Ready. Orderly appearance. Verses 9 and 10. He's given some expectations for the men. I skipped over those a little bit because I want to come back to them. But uh, he turns to the women in verse 9 and he says, first of all, what you're not to... He's talking about their appearance. And he gives them what they're not to look like in verse 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And then verse 10, he tells them what is proper, what they are to wear, uh, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Uh, So, you know, it's more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. That's the bottom line. Don't be known for what you look like. Be known Mm -hmm. for what you are in your character. Right. And... You know, we may say more about this later, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't look pretty and you can't dress nice. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a matter of emphasis and priority. I mean, what you're known for, as I said before. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last point that he makes on order is about orderly worship, verses 11 and following. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Wow. You know, if I wasn't reading from the Bible and I just said that as Drew's opinion, I'd be run out of town. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's very controversial. Oh, yeah. Uh, Donald Guthrie makes a statement about verse 15 on childbearing that the statement, she shall be saved in childbearing, must rank among the most difficult expressions in the whole of the pastorals. Talking about 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's not one of the most difficult statements in the entire New Testament. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be a big part of segment two. But getting back to what his his point is, it's all about order. You know, I believe that what he's saying in verses 8 through 15 of our reading today has to do with the weekly assemblies of the church, you know, the public assemblies. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, these, these instructions wouldn't fit into the context, for example, of, of Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is saying, you know, go to your closet and pray to your Father in secret yeah. and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Uh, these are obviously not secret prayers. 
mm-hmm. not the prayers of you know a personal person, personal person, a personal person. <laughs> uh, it's not that kind of prayer. You know, this is public prayer on behalf of leaders in our country and that kind of thing. And uh, this is a public assembly where the women are to be submissive and show that submissiveness, and the men are to lead in a faithful way. And uh, that's very important for us to understand. And so it's order and, you know, orderly prayer, orderly life, orderly appearance, orderly worship. There's a lot to talk about here. Um, You want to add anything before we take a break? I think you've pretty much covered everything I was going to say. So we'll... uh, I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. Uh, We've talked a lot about order and we'll come back in the next section. And there's so much stuff to choose from to discuss. I think we're going to have a hard time keeping this next section down to the proper time limit. But don't don't tell them that ahead of time. I mean, I mean it'll be short and quick. Yeah, very minutes. brief, punchy. Yeah. You know, change your life in five right. minutes or less. That's right. Okay, we're back and we're going to dig a little deeper into chapter two. And there are so many things that we could get into. We had discussion on prayer, discussion on government, uh, talking about the deity of Christ. We're talking about men and women's roles. We're talking about prayer posture, talking about modesty. So there's a lot of things in here to choose from, but we have selected... Two of these things that we're going to start with, if we run out of time, we run out of time. But we have two uh, that we think maybe are are of uh, particular importance and of interest right now, anyway, uh, at least to us. And the first thing we want to mention is in verse 5, speaking of the deity of Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So I guess I said that wrong. We're focusing more on the manhood right. of Christ here Humanity. while also recognizing his deity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we had talked about in verse 8 that that word translated man is a nair, which is specific to the gender of a person, the male gender. And that's important for understanding verse 8. But in verse 5, it's important to understand that the word man, as it pertains to Jesus Christ, is translated, translated from the word for human beings, anthropos. Again, you know, the study of humanity is anthropology. So, you know, there's a very clear meaning to that word that is intended by Paul. It wasn't him just casually throwing a word out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He selects the proper word for every passage, and it's delivered through Paul as an agent, the apostle who's writing under inspiration. So he says there's one God and one mediator, and this and this also has to do with what it means to be a mediator. Mm-hmm. You know, a mediator is a go-between. A mediator is somebody who can relate to both sides, who is working to bring both sides together in reconciliation. And there's only one. So... Just contextually, we get the meaning that Jesus is, in his nature, something or someone that no one else is. 
Right. Right? Because mm-hmm. there's only one. There is one mediator. There is one only son who is between God and men. And then as a little hint about what makes him unique, Paul says the man, the human being, Christ Jesus. Uh, we had a class here at Asheville Road. I don't know if I brought this up on other podcasts, but it was one of the it was one of the more interesting classes for me to teach. I mean, I just really enjoyed the study of it about the forms of Christ. And I use the word form because it appears twice in Philippians two five through eight, mm-hmm. translated from morphe. Yeah. Uh, and form doesn't really get to what morphe is. Form is, you know, in English we use it as. Uh, the shape of a thing, the out, mm-hmm. outside appearance. But the Greek term morphe, translated form, is uh, a word that means the very essence, the very yeah. nature, as the NIV translates like it. Like the consistency of a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, this kind of relates to some of that stuff. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul talks about how Jesus was in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. So you have Jesus changing forms. Mm-hmm. He was only divine before the world was created and before he was born of Mary. Mm-hmm. And then the scripture teaches us that he was born of a woman, which is something we'll get to in a moment, I think in, in verse 15. But he was born of a woman, which means... He was then human, but he did not lose his divinity, right? So mm-hmm. at that point on earth, he was 100% divine, 100% human. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have 1 Timothy 2.5 and maybe some other passages, we might assume that when he ascended into heaven, he then went back to being 100% divine. Mm-hmm. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says he can mediate our prayers to the Father because he is human, mm-hmm. which is to say that now, at the right hand of God, exalted in heaven, he is still 100% divine, 100% human, which is to say 100% God, 100% man. Mm-hmm. He's the God-man forever. Yeah. And what really, there's a lot of things we could, you know, considerations we could draw out of that, but one of the most important to me, as I think about what Jesus has done for me, is that When he came to earth for our sins, to deal with sin, he changed in a way so that he would never again be the same. Yeah. Yeah. He changed him forever. Yeah. And uh, when he, and another point, you know, I'm sure you've got some things to say on this, but I'm just so fascinated by this. I keep talking about it. Mm. When he ascended into heaven, he was in that bodily form. You know, God is spirit, John 4, 24. Uh, we assume that means he has no bodily form, but here, here's God in bodily form ascending into heaven. And the angels don't say, well, you'll never see him like that again. They say, in the way that he went up, he's going to come back down again mm-hmm. when he returns. He's going to be that way, and now he's been that way for 2,000 years, and whenever he comes back, he's going to be in that form. Yeah. It's not the same form we are in, it's a glorified form that he wore, that he was mm-hmm. after his resurrection. Yeah, this is all incredibly interesting stuff, and like you said, it's very impactful to, I think, our faith 
in Christ gives us a much deeper glimpse into his character and his nature and what exactly he has done for us. And that passage there in Philippians 2 that you mentioned, uh, I think is one of the greatest passages that speaks to that point. But it's interesting, there's one mediator between God and man. And when you think of a mediator, especially in this kind of a scenario between God and man, you look back at the Old Testament and Hebrews 1, the first few verses, speaks to this. It says, in long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets. And we had another class here on prophets, priests, and kings, and we talked about the role of each of them. And we mentioned that they were all basically mediators between the people and God. So a yeah. prophet was God's mediator to the people. So God would speak to the prophet and say, okay, prophet, this is what you need to tell all the people. And then the prophet would go out and say, here's the word of the Lord. And then the priest would take the, I guess, the sins of the people, offer the sacrifice. He was basically the mediator between the people, the people going to God. So you have the prophet is God going to the people. And a lot of times, and the priest is the people trying to go to God. Uh, that's yeah. why the priest had all these, you know, um, Leviticus tells you about all their, their, um, their own requirements to be set apart even among the people who were set apart. Um, so it's just interesting here. Yeah, that that's you a had, good point. Jesus can fulfill both of those roles because he Incoming is God. Incoming and outgoing. Yeah. He's like the only one who's really... And all of those prophets and priests were just about this. It, it right. all was about 1 Timothy 2.5. Right. In just a few words, Paul explains... Half of the Old Testament. Yeah, and that's you know. that's what the sec, that's what uh, verse two of Hebrews one says. It says, "But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son." Mm-hmm. So it's just really interesting that we have the reason we have such a great mediator here is because he is both sides. Mm-hmm. He is God. He is man. So he can definitely, you know, fulfill that role for us as a mediator. Uh, Really interesting stuff there. Yeah. I mean, we'll be thinking about that for the rest of our lives, so we might as well go on to verse 15, right? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I'm a little nervous about this one. I want to get it right, but it's it's like I said, that that quotation attributed to Donald Guthrie. It's, Mm -hmm. what did he say? The most, ranks among the most difficult expressions in the, in the whole of the pastorals. Uh, It's very difficult, and we, you know, we want to get it right. We don't want to sugarcoat it, nor do we want to make it something it's not. Yeah. I'll read the verse again, and all the translations are pretty much the same. I checked this because I wanted to see if there are any alternate translations that, that were radically different. There's not. Uh, after discussing the role of women and how that's, you know, goes back to creation, in verse 15 he says, of the woman, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yeah. Now, I've looked through my library, I've combed the, the commentaries, and I've come up with seven possible interpretations. And that's not that doesn't represent all the interpretations that you can find. Just probably seven most likely candidates. And the only way I know to discuss this is just to go through each one 
and talk about their merits and their faults. Okay. Okay, here's number one. Could he be saying the woman will get safely through childbirth? She's not going to die, which is not something any of you husbands should say to your wives when they're in labor. Oh, quiet. You're not going to die. Here's some ice chips. Yeah. don't do that. Here's don't some do lip it. balm and ice chips. Yeah. Andrew's about to go through this. This is very... Good advice. Very timely. Yeah. Yeah. It just hit me that, I mean, I can, can we get personal here? How, how far are we from due date? We are five weeks and some change. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're four weeks and some change. <laughs> We're almost four weeks out. She'll be 36 weeks pregnant this week. As okay, so as this is for Wednesday night, she'll be thirty six weeks pregnant like tomorrow, if people are listening to this on Wednesday. Yeah. So we're getting close. I can't go to camp for the whole week because we're getting close to crunch time and I don't want to be two hours away with no cell phone service if she has to be rushed to the hospital. Yeah. You know, we'll have lots more weeks. Well, of camp. So this is a good time for you to talk about this. But yeah. uh the 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 first Interpretation: The woman gets safely through childbirth. You know, it really has to do with the physical safety of the mother. And yeah. I don't think that, although Paul, I'm sure, was concerned about that, I don't think that was what he was talking about. Yeah, it would seem a little out of place yeah. in the context. It would be weird for him to jump to that. So I shouldn't take, like, during labor, I shouldn't just say, hey, you know what, maybe this will make you feel better. I'm going to read a verse Here's, here. Yeah. <laughs> You will be saved through childbearing if <laughs> if, if they, you continue. Whoever they are, the yeah. nurses, uh, if, if the, the nurses doctors continue, faith, love, holiness, and self control. Yeah, yeah. Which so we maybe, should point out, there is something among all the other problems. There is a switch from singular to plural, and again, this is in all the translations. She will be saved if they do something. So. Uh, that's important to point out. All right, let's go to interpretation number two. Could it mean women are saved from sin through childbearing? Now, this is a bad one. I yeah, think this, this is the is worst. Definitely the worst. Right? Because then you have almost, you can have women say, you know what? I'm not going to do anything with regards to following Christ. As long as I have a child before I die, I'm saved. Well, yeah, and what about the gospel in verses 5 through 7 and the plan of salvation? And what about women who can't have children, women who aren't married, children who pass away? Mm. I mean, the bottom, it's it's like saying if you have a baby, you go to heaven. You can't go to heaven unless you have a baby, if you're a woman. Men don't matter. I think we can all agree is completely out of the question. Yeah, it's not even worth talking about. I mean, okay. there's a lot more interesting. It's worth saying that it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it is absurd. That's true. All right. So number three, a really interesting one here. Could it be women will be saved by means of the childbearing? The definite article is in the original so that mm-hmm. it would literally say she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um so what what would the childbearing be? It would be the birth of Jesus Christ from Mary. Mm-hmm. So it's not just any woman who is bearing a child here. It is Mary. 
Yeah, know, and if we go back giving to... Giving birth to the Savior. Yeah, and if we think about this in the context of Adam and Eve, you know, what prophecy was made right there at the fall? You know, it was that... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, you will... Okay, now I'm gonna, how am I going to get this wrong? Uh, you will uh, bite his heel, but he will bruise your head. Isn't that it? The yes, to the, yeah, to the serpent. Yeah, to the serpent. Yeah. Yeah, I was That's getting what makes it the sense. biting and bruising. It's Look, as you listen to this, it's early on a Saturday Can morning. I would put enmity slack. between you and the woman, mm-hmm. between your offspring and her offspring. So you, there is an emphasis in prophecy on the childbearing. I mean, yeah. and then he shall bruise your head, saying to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So he yeah. shall deal you, the serpent, a fatal blow. You shall deal him a non-fatal blow. Yeah. Which is the crucifixion, and uh, the the this has among its many merits. It can be reconciled with other passages of scripture. Whereas you mm-hmm. know, if we're saying women are saved from sin through childbearing, we can't justify that from any other passage of scripture. But if you're saying the childbearing uh, will be saved through that, um, you also have Paul's phrase in Galatians four four, born of a woman. So there's like, you know, some yeah. tie-in to the virgin birth throughout Scripture. And the little caveat at the end fits into that. If you say, she likes saying women here will be saved through Christ if they continue in yeah. love, holiness. That matches. The only thing that doesn't match with this is it does not fit well into the context of men and women's roles, I think. Because men also would be saved. You know, you could substitute the women in there for men as well. Well, there's a category. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, there's so many things going in my head. I'm afraid I'm going to forget one of them. So there is a category of interpretations that all kind of serve as a mitigating factor to what Paul has been saying about men's gifts Gifts that men have because they are of the male gender. So Mm -hmm. the context is men are to pray, women are to learn in submission. And, you know, that comes off harsh in our day. Paul realizes that it comes off harsh in his day, or it, it appears to be harsh. It's not really harsh. It appears that way because of cultural sentiments and, and whatnot. So, um, He's wanting to balance that out by saying, but wait, don't think that God is counting the women out. Not at all. He's given women very important roles. And this is the first of several interpretations that see Paul as balancing out what he's saying and reminding people of the great gifts that God has given women. So Mm -hmm. what greater gift can God give somebody than to give them the privilege of carrying the Savior of the world and being the mother of the Savior of the world? Right. So he's like, don't forget, it was a woman who raised the Savior. Yeah. You know. Now that that fits very nicely. And this is a letter, so there's a natural, you know, conversational tone to it. Mm -hmm. And he could be saying, look, okay, men pray. Uh, Big deal. A woman brought the Savior into the world. Yeah. So don't come to me and say, you're against women. I'm not against women. I honor Mary in saying this. Yeah, again, I think it's very interesting to note that Paul 
is not he recognizes male female equality. And I'm going to get this statement from the um, what is this called the Apologetic Study Bible. He recognizes that men and women are equal in Christ, but that does not require abolishing all role distinctions. And I think that's a really good way to to sum up what Paul has to say about gender roles and gender equality. You know, he's saying men and women are both uh, are on equal footing. They just have different roles. And just because they're equal doesn't mean that you have to abolish the different roles that they've been given. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Okay, here is number four. All right, could he be saying women are saved if their children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, which is making the most of the trans transfer from singular to plural. Yeah. So you she know, it's looking at this and not really thinking about the context of the passage or the whole Bible, and saying, you know, she, the mother, will be saved through childbearing. If her children continue in faith and love and only in self-control, the problem there obviously is that we're not going to be saved by somebody else's faith. Yeah. And parents aren't saved only if their children are obedient to the faith. Yeah. I mean, you know, if if that were true, you know, a lot of people would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, a lot That's of it. well, think you know, of I'm thinking of specifically Elijah, right? Elijah Elisha, had no children. Or Elisha. Elisha had no children. Okay, we're going to have to go back and change this. <laughs> Eli. Eli, yeah, there we go. Eli. We're going to have to go back and cut that out. Definitely. No, we're keeping that. Okay, Eli, again. Again, Saturday morning, <laughs> cut me some sweat. So you got to say things well, like you that. Well, just, you just got the, you know, Elijah's nickname mixed up with the... Yeah, Eli. Eli. So Eli, even Eli wouldn't have been... You know, he would have been in trouble if our salvation is based on our yeah, children. Yeah, Eli, Samuel. Yeah, uh, David, yeah, pretty much every parent. In, not Elijah or Elisha. Not them. Neither one of them had kids. Not Paul. Not okay, Paul. we're wasting time. Yeah, we're uh, wasting a lot of time. But I think we can agree this one too is no good. Yeah, no yeah, good. Nothing, nothing good there. Man. Number five, could it be Eve was saved from death by childbearing? You know, God would have stricken her dead if it had not been that he needed her to bring, to multiply the, the almost said species, the hu- yeah. humanity. Wow, that's really disrespectful to women there because it's saying yeah. you know, that their only use is this. And the only reason Eve was in the world, well, what about Adam? Why, why didn't God want to kill Adam? So I don't think there's anything in the Bible to support that idea. Although that has been a trans uh, interpretation that some have floated out there as the explanation to this. And yeah. I think the reason they're drawn to that is um, misogyny. But besides that, mm-hmm. um, verse 15, she, who is the one woman he's talking about, she will be safe through childbearing. Well, you know, Mother Eve may be the one she's talking. Uh, Paul is talking about. But mm-hmm. no, I don't, I don't think that's a good translation. Yeah, interpretation. Sorry. Yeah, especially since the there's a lot of a lot to be said about the the punishment for eating from the tree where you will surely die. Like in Hebrew, it says dying you will die. It doesn't say surely in there. It just says like yeah, dying you will die. And there's a lot of you know I've heard a lot of and read a lot of really solid stuff on the fact that it wasn't necessarily 
a, if you eat from the tree, I'm going to strike you dead that moment. But right. said, if you eat yeah. from the tree, then you're going to start dying from that day. And as he tells Adam, you know, you were made from dust and the dust you'll return. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, well, God was going to immediately strike her dead. But he changed his mind and said, you know what, you, we can use you for something. You can have kids. We'll yeah. keep you around. <laughs> right. I mean, Adam and Eve suffered the same fate, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to number six. All women join in suffering for the sin of Eve. Going back to the curse where in Genesis 3, the woman is told that she will suffer the pains of childbirth Mm -hmm. um, as a result of the sin that she committed. That's part of the dying, perhaps. That's part of the cursed world that we came to live in because of sin. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, so there's some of the order that we're looking at in there, and then along with it, the pain of childbirth. Um, I I don't really like that one. Um, it just doesn't seem to be what he's saying. He's not talking about pain. He's saying he's talking about salvation. Yeah. Right. The emphasis isn't on the pain or the suffering. Yeah. Unless, unless I get that wrong. Yeah, he's not. It doesn't saying... say that. You know, it's not that it's not true that all women join in the suffering of childbirth. It's yeah. It's, it's just not more... what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think I'm out on that interpretation as well. Okay, so what about this one, number seven? Men alone have the privilege of authority. Women alone have the privilege of childbearing. All right, so at first that seems to be one of those things that he's not saying, but stay with me because he starts out, you know, he's and this is in that category of balancing out what he's been saying before. He's been talking about the order in the church, order of worship, order of the roles of men and women. He's saying men should lead and women should be in submission. And he realizes that comes off harsh. And he wants to remind his readers that women have a special place as well. So he's, you you put yourself in the shoes of Paul. He's writing this off. It's conversational. And he's saying, now look, you know, to give an example of how women are privileged as well, they alone have the privilege of bearing children, something that no man can do. Mm-hmm. So men, they lead prayer in public places, which is something that women are not to do, but they can do if they usurp the authority of men or whatever. Yeah. But here's something that even if men wanted to do it, they couldn't do it, bear children. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that lends itself to that interpretation, I'll just go ahead and say this is my favorite interpretation. It's the one I think is true. And I might not have decided that was the right one if it wasn't first for 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Yeah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is in the same discussion of the authority submission principle. Men lead, women uh, are to be submissive. And notice how what he does here as he's making this argument. He's saying, um, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And then verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, 
nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Isn't he doing the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 11 that he's doing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, moving from the discussion of male spiritual authority to childbirth yeah, as a way to balance this out and soften what he's been saying about the submission of women. Yeah, almost like, a, you know, men don't think you're overly important. Without women, you wouldn't even be here. Exactly. You know? And without God, neither one of you would be here. That's kind of what First Corinthians 11, kind of that, those verses you read, you know, man or woman, you need man, man, you need woman and God, and you both need God. Mm-hmm. So I think it, like you said, it puts us all on, on equal, on an equal level, but with different roles, an equal level with different roles. I want to uh, keep reading from that little uh, passage I was reading earlier from the that uh, apologetic study Bible, uh, and I think this this goes hand in hand with your with this interpretation that you're bringing up here. Um, the woman was created to be a helper for man. Eve's exercise of authority over Adam brought disaster, illustrating the dangers of upsetting the family's divine divinely ordained leadership structure. Evidently, the false teachers taught that the male authority in the church and home and the woman's childbearing role were curses for sin, which Jesus' atoning work had eradicated. Paul recognized that Eve's curse involved oppressive male leadership and pain in childbearing, and that's straight from Genesis 3 that we read earlier. You will have much pain in childbearing, and your desire will be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So Paul recognized that, but... Male leadership and childbearing were a part of God's plan for pre-fall creation. So I really like that he brings this up here in saying that it wasn't just because of the fall that women were supposed to have children and that men were supposed to be the leaders. Mm-hmm. That but it's was, become twisted. Right. The, prop, the things that came in from the fall were now there's going to be corrupted leadership of men they're going to be oppressive they're going to uh be abusive in many cases and then or in some cases and then you have pain that comes in childbirth now um, yeah everything is corrupted so we still have a little of the joy yeah but everything is corrupted like work for example mm-hmm. you know god put man in the garden to till the ground to work the earth and to subdue the earth and then at the curse, he says, you know, by the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles the, will be produced. So mm-hmm. it's still you're still working the garden, but now it's drudgery and toil instead of pleasurable yeah. work. Um, and, I, you know, I had another example. Uh, life itself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still joy in life, but it's, it's punctuated by sorrows and... and yeah. It, it you know we're all headed towards the grave and that's always on our mind mm-hmm. and there's no tree of life here on this side of of death so yeah um you know the, these are things we could talk about forever we're kind of going over time here and there's okay. some other things i wanted to say but I, i'm just going to cut it off right there and let our listeners discuss and you know just a reminder here anytime you want to shoot an email to us or tweet something at us, or put something on the Facebook page. Nobody ever does that, but um, we'd love to hear that and uh, continue the discussion outside the podcast. 
But uh, we better take a break here and come back. We always want to make it practical at the end. So um, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll wrap things up. Really quickly, because as usual, we're almost out of time as we get to the third segment. We're going to talk about some of the practical aspects of this, and I want to start with prayer. We saw a lot about prayer here. Uh, first of all, those interesting um, types of prayer, categories of prayer that you see in verse 1, you have supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Mm-hmm. And uh, some commentators will say Paul is not meaning to distinguish specific types of prayer. He's just making sure that you understand he's talking about all kinds of prayer should be made for all people, especially kings and people in positions of authority. But it is there are a few little differences between each of those terms. Uh, supplications has to do with a personal need that you might bring before God. Whereas uh, prayers is the common word for prayer, which may have to do with devotion to God. And then um, intercessions has the nuance of a childlike confidence, um, a familiar prayer that boldly draws near to God. And thanksgivings is what it sounds like, you know, thanking God, gratitude for blessings. Uh, You can think about those and see if they help you in your prayer life. But I also want to go down to verse 8 and make a, another point about prayer and those who should lead prayer in the public assemblies. We haven't talked about it a whole lot, and hopefully we'll have a little time to talk about it in a minute. But there are roles for men and women in prayer. Uh, men are to lead prayer in the worship assemblies. Women are to uh, submissively participate in the prayer. Uh, but that doesn't mean all men are qualified to lead prayer. He gives three qualifications for men who lead in prayer, first of all, they need to pray lifting holy hands. And the lifting of hands in that time was a cultural posture for prayer. But the emphasis here is on holiness. There to be men who are pure, who have been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, Symbolizes like a a pure lifestyle yeah. sort of thing. And we make this about the posture of prayer. We miss the whole point, mm-hmm. you know. Um and then number two, they don't need to be angry. Number three, they don't need to be quarreling, which is questioning everything. It's kind of the idea. Same word from Philippians 2.15, do all things without murmurings or disputings mm-hmm. or questionings. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, if you have something against your brother, make sure you, you basically reconcile before you go to God. And, you know, there's other places yeah. that Don't bring with, that into your worship. Yeah, kind of settle those kind of disputes before, which, you know, I don't think it's too much of a speculation to say that with all these kind of different, looks like there's a lot of different teachers clashing over a lot of different things here in Ephesus. Yeah. And even it's likely that they're, you know, you have men clashing over these myths and genealogies, and then you might have, a bunch of women at the congregation who are trying to just disregard all the leadership that has already been set up. And so they're clashing against the leadership while everybody else is clashing against each other. So it sounds to me 
Like this is a very, you know, timely admonition here from Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to talk about, you know, making sure you settle your or calm your anger at least. Yeah. And settle your quarrels. I think there's a really interesting leadership principle here. This isn't about one guy being better than another guy and mm-hmm. saying, you know, you know, holy men are better than men who struggle with sin or um, people who can control their temper are better than people who can't. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. We're saved by grace. We all struggle with sin. Mm-hmm. But from a leadership perspective, uh, you know, everybody put yourself in the shoes of the people who are following in prayer. Do you? How easy is it for you to follow a man leading prayer whom you know to be in sin, whom you know to have a bad temper, yeah. whom you know to always be quarreling and questioning? There, there's an obstacle there, and it's totally natural for you to feel that obstacle. Yeah. So if the church is going to be a place of prayer, the men leading prayer have to be men that people want, that people respect. You know, yeah. the bottom line, that don't have problems with half the congregation. Yeah. So if you want to be somebody who's always fighting, and you, you're one of these people who say, well, you know, I just tell it like it is. That's who I am. You can take it or leave it. Yeah. If that's your thing, fine, but don't lead prayer. You can't lead prayer. You're not qualified. Yeah. And there's a common sense reason for that. People aren't following you in prayer. The whole time you're up there, they're thinking about the last fight they had with you and how how angry a person you are. They're not yeah. thinking about God. And you're supposed to get out of the way of God in yeah. leading in worship, whether you're yeah. singing, praying. I think these things should apply to serving at the Lord's table, um, reading Scripture, praying, preaching, what have you. Yeah. We'll talk about preaching a lot when we get into chapter 4 and some of the other chapters. Yeah. Wow, there's so much. I mean, this could be a two-hour episode, really. Yeah, it really could be. Uh, I know people listening aren't thinking that. but I'm going, thinking no, no, somebody... no. Yeah. This could have been a 15-minute episode, too. <laughs> the quarreling angry guy is saying that right now. Exactly. He can't lead prayer Sunday. Sorry. Yeah, so there. Uh, what else are we going to do? Let's get off of prayer. Let's go to... The 11, verses 11 to the end. All right, yeah. We're going to skip the stuff on modest apparel. Just because it's self-explanatory, not because it's not important. I just think that everybody gets that. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. it makes perfect sense. Um, But, yeah, please cover up and look nice and don't wear distracting apparel. And make sure you're known for your spirit and not for your clothing. I I was about to say I think you covered that perfectly in the first section. Yeah. So why did made that I do distinction? It I don't know. Reinforcement. That's how you learn things. Exactly. Uh, so the role of women, we have to say this because it's so controversial today, but there is clear order based on gender here in verses 11 and following, which is really pertinent today when people are blending genders and saying their gender should never be even recognized or that you can choose the gender of your choice. There's a difference between sex, which is what you're assigned, and gender, what you choose to identify with inside of you. All these crazy, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, that's, they are. They're crazy, chaotic assumptions. Here is order, 
God says, you know, men and women are distinct. There are differences. There are things that men do that women should not do. There are things women do that men cannot do. And these are only samples here in 1 Timothy 2, not a comprehensive list. Mm -hmm. But one thing that men should do that women cannot do is teach an assembly and Mm -hmm. exercise the authority of the assembly. And the um, complement to that is um, remaining quiet and submissive. Now, the word quiet in verse 12 is the same word that you find in verse 2 when Paul says, our prayers have the aim of a peaceful and quiet life. Mm-hmm. So it's not absolute silence. And I know that gets confusing, especially when you go over to 1 Corinthians 14 and the word silent is used of women in verses 34 and 35. Don't have time to get into all of that. Just, you know, what do you mean by a quiet life? You don't mean that you never open your mouth. What you mean by a quiet life is that there's, you know, peace there and submission and a willingness to accept the way things are to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what he's talking about in verse 12 for women. And no, this isn't cultural because in verses 13 and 14, he goes all the way back to creation, pre-culture, to say this is the order of creation. And you have to think about this from a, a Jewish mindset where the firstborn was the leader of the family. You know, by virtue of of his being created first, he is the leader of the family. So mm-hmm. God created Adam first, Eve second. And then when he says that Adam was not deceived, he's not being, you know, um, he's not trying to insult women or he's insult not saying Eve. Adam would have never been deceived. No, he's talking about the nature of the sin. You yeah. know, Eve was deceived by the serpent, but Adam knew what was happening the whole time. Mm-hmm. And he willingly let Eve take the lead, which was his sin. And, you know, if you look in Romans 5 and other passages, Paul is saying Adam was the one who sinned there just mm-hmm. by being there and not leading, yeah, it doesn't knowing even... that they shouldn't have eaten the, ap- uh, the apple, the fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. The yep. fruit. Knowing they shouldn't have eaten the fruit and, um, you know, not saying anything. Yeah, Paul doesn't even bring up Eve in that context. He talks about yeah. sin and death entered the world through one man, through Adam. And so he puts the blame solely on Adam there. doesn't even bring up Eve. So it's definitely not this idea of, well, Eve messed up everything for everybody. You know, yeah, I know. And, for... we, and that's when we insult women, mm-hmm. whereas Paul is not really doing that. Right. Especially look at the whole context. You know, it's like this, um, the real sin, we always look at it as the sin was that Eve ate that forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. But the sin was Adam let her make that decision when he knew she was sinning and he knew the serpent was lying and he knew it was not God's word. Mm-hmm. She might have been deceived, but he went in with his eyes open. Yeah. And just said, well, if she wants to do that, let her do that. Mm-hmm. And that was the sin. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. He knew he should have stopped it, and he didn't. Yeah. So that was the sin. Mm-hmm. So that's the basis for um, male spiritual leadership. Man was created first, and the first sin was a failure to accept the leadership. And look right. what happened. So... You know, meet your roles, basically. 
Yeah, and I, and I want to return to this. We've said this a couple times already, but I think the important thing to stress is a lot of times, you know, we our culture definitely views, well, if we say men have to be the leading figures, then we are being, you know, um, I guess we're being disrespectful to women. We're not being mindful of all the, you know, the merits of women over men and that sort of thing. And we are not sitting here today trying to say that men are better, smarter, whatever than women. Uh, in most cases, I'm pretty sure we would say the opposite. Uh, but we really want to return to this and say again, this is not a matter of prominence of one gender over the other. This is just different roles is all it is. You know, both equal on the side of God. Paul says as much. There's no male or female Slave or free, Jew or Greek, in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, we're all one. Um, that is certainly true. We're all equal, but there is this designed order for things, which is the whole, to bring it back to this, the, the idea, the theme of the chapter. The order is that men have certain roles and women have certain roles. No one is more important than the other, but they are different. So definitely... It might be difficult to for us to respect that order and still, you know, have everybody always think that we're doing everything right. Uh, when I just say that, and speaking of our culture, you know, they a lot of folks look down on that idea. I think it's an archaic, oppressive mindset to have the men as the leaders. But you know, this is the responsibility given to us by God. This is the right. order. It's the word of God. I yeah. mean. You know, it, you really know if you have faith in the Bible as God's Word when it goes against the grain of your culture and you still follow it. Mm -hmm. You know, people who follow what's popular are not really making the sacrifices there and showing exercising the faith. It's when, yeah. you're, when you're following it even against what's popular and what's trendy, when you realize... That you you have faith in it, and yes, people, it's possible to misunderstand. And yes, we need to revisit our interpretations. But I, you know, there's a lot of people that try to change the wording here to make make it suit um, female yeah. preachers and elders, etc. Uh, you know, there you'll see from First Timothy in particular, there is no case to be made for female preachers, elders deacons even, etc. And we'll get more into that in chapter 3 and in Titus 1. Yeah, I just want to add something here. Um, you Something you just said sparked this about, you know, um, revisiting our interpretations and this is the Word of God. And, you know, we need to make sure that we side with the Word of God. One of these commentaries I've got here just is totally, this is not the approach we need to have. This So this goes through like this whole thing about exercising authority over man and all yeah. these gender roles. Then it says the practical implications of Paul's statement depend on the interpretive option that you choose for this part of Paul's letter. Yeah, that's that's what like this guy somebody who doesn't want to offend anybody is trying to sell a bunch of books. a large group of people who believe the Bible is God's word. So I would not recommend saying, you know what, this is what it says and the, this is what it means, this is what it teaches. But, you know, you just interpret it based upon whatever option you pick, whatever option you think is the best. And that reminds me of uh, Timothy Keller, 
who is a very well-known author nowadays, uh, he just put something out on Twitter a couple of days ago that I, that I still remember uh, had an impact on me. It was basically, you know, if you never disagree with your God, then maybe your God is just an ideal image of yourself. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's that's a really good comment. And uh, that's, you know, put a lot better, but it's what I was trying to say a minute ago. So I'm glad you remembered that and showed that people are a lot more eloquent than I am. (laughs) Uh, We're over time, so we better take this out. Let's get out of here. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, We are looking forward to continuing our discussion, the pastoral epistles. We've talked about how you can get in touch with us. We're everywhere. All over the internet. That's right. Uh, just look us up. Send us a line. Taking the ratings and reviews are much appreciated on iTunes. Helps us get up in the rankings. We're now number three when you type in the sixty six podcast, which is the exact name of our podcast. <laughs> I don't know if that's something to be excited about, but that's the way it is. Um, As always, we'll be here for a long time. We're nowhere close to meeting our goal of the 66. So tune in next time. We'll talk about 1 Timothy chapter 3.